Okay, this morning I'm going to keep moving through a series called Rewind. So if, if you have not been with us for this, let me give you the 20-second synopsis of what we've been doing all through the season of Lent, the last six weeks. We're taking the Gospel of John and moving backwards. So when Lent began six weeks ago, I started at the passage in John which comes right before the crucifixion. And every week we've been backing up one step at a time through the Gospel of John. That means that last week on Palm Sunday, we were backed up to the Palm Sunday passage where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. When we gathered here for worship on Monday, Thursday, we backed up one more step to the passage in which Mary opens a jar of very expensive perfume and pours it all down Jesus to anoint him for his burial. And today we're going to back up one more. Now, I know it's Easter. You're supposed to preach on the resurrection of Jesus. We read that passage at the very beginning. But I think John puts this story in here way back in chapter 11 as something that points us towards Easter. And let me, before I read that, let me just note a couple other things about John in particular that make this a little extra special, that highlight this passage in this part of John's Gospel. If you've been with me before, you know that sometimes I point out the way that the Bible is written, that the biblical writers put passages in there that sort of all come to a center. That It's a sort of a mirror effect, where they write something and then they've got their main point right in the middle, and then they write something that gives it symmetry on the other end. Often biblical passages do that. Now, I know that when the people wrote the Bible, they didn't put in all the chapter and verse numbers. That wasn't there when they wrote it. People put that in later as a way for us to reference the Bible. But it gives us a little bit of an indicator of how these writings are broken apart, at least in that sense. John then, when it was broken up to chapters and verses, the people who decided where those markings would go gave it 21 chapters. So 21 sections or movements that take place in the Gospel of John. That means, if you're following what I say about a centerpiece, that means there are 10 chapters in the Gospel of John, then a center chapter, and then... Ten more chapters that come after that. Through this season of Lent, we've been looking at those last ten chapters in reverse. And today we get to John chapter 11, which is the very middle, the center of the book. And that's significant in how the biblical writers work, what comes in the middle. Significant for another reason, too, that John, when he writes his gospel, likes to use the number seven. He puts things in groupings of seven. For example, in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am phrases, if you're familiar with that. The things that Jesus would say about himself. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. We'll see another one of those I ams here in chapter 11 today. Seven of those appear in the Gospel of John. John also picks seven miracles. Of all the signs and wonders that Jesus did, and there were many John picks out seven to highlight in his stories. So only seven miracles of Jesus show up in the writing of John. 
And here in chapter 11 is the seventh and final of those seven miracles that John highlights. There is a lot coming together in this one chapter. It's sort of the crescendo of the entire gospel. So even though we're here on Easter, where it's supposed to be the resurrection of Jesus, that gives us the crescendo of the gospel, John is giving us a foreshadow of that in chapter 11. And there's quite a bit to it. So uh, if you are with us regularly and you pick up one of those bulletins, you know how we sort of have our bulletin layout with passage in there and a place for notes and things like that. I'm going to read enough of this to where we had to rearrange a little bit of that to fit all of these words in today. So it's, it's a significant reading that comes from John chapter 11. But there's so much good stuff in here that I want us to see today. All right? So a resurrection story that comes from John chapter 11. I'm going to begin at verse 17. On his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how she quickly got up and went out, they followed, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. The Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, 
By this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A resurrection story back here in John chapter 11. Something that points us forward to what Jesus is up to, what Jesus is doing. That's been one of the themes that I've been pointing to all through this series in Lent, that, that John, as he writes his gospel, is presenting Jesus in a way that keeps giving these hints, that he's dropping these hints for the people around him of what's coming, of what is still in store. This story is no different, that John places this one to teach us something about what is coming in that. Today then, this morning, I want us to spend just a few minutes trying to picture the scene as it takes place here. The small village of Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. That the home of Mary and Martha and now deceased Lazarus. That people are gathered there. It was a family that was prominent and well-known enough that other people came from Jerusalem to be there with them. So there's a crowd of people around who've come to comfort Mary and Martha during this time. Jesus comes along, but he doesn't enter the village. He stays outside. Martha comes to greet him, and they have that exchange, that conversation that takes place there. And then Martha goes and gets Mary, and Mary comes in the exact same conversation takes place. If you'd been here, our brother would have died, they both say. Jesus reacts to that. He has a reaction. It's an emotional reaction. It's one that I want us to take a look at here first because I don't know that our English Bibles catch this. It's one of those passages where, I mean, in, in one ways, it's famous because it contains the shortest verse in the Bible. Everyone who memorizes scripture, I'll memorize that one. Jesus wept. It's a passage that involves grieving, and, and we sort of get that feel in the way it comes to us, that Jesus is grieving along with his friends. It's not the same word, though. Uh, there, there is a Greek word that's used to talk about the weeping of Mary and Martha and all the family and friends that have gathered. It's a Greek word that involves crying and wailing, sobbing. The Greek word used to describe Jesus weeping is not the same word. 
It's a word that simply means he had tears. And it's a word that in Greek does not attach any emotion to it. It doesn't tell us what the tears are about. It's left non-descriptive that way. But John gives us another clue. He says Jesus was deeply moved. Twice that appears in this passage. Jesus is deeply moved. Now, that comes from a Greek word that does not mean deeply moved. At least not the way we think of it in English. This is a Greek word that actually means disgust, outrage, anger. The, the Greek word that's there, embryomomai, is a word that literally refers to, the root of that word is a horse's snort. If you can imagine that. That's the feeling, the emotion behind this word. Jesus is disgusted. He's angry. He's outraged in this scene. So as I've been setting this up, and as you've been picturing it in your head, I imagine we weren't picturing it like that. So here's a change that we need to imagine. I tried to read it that way when I read the passage, that those sayings from Jesus are just short. That Jesus just gets right to the point. He's not happy with what's happening here. But his sadness is not the same kind of sadness as Mary and Martha and all of the others who are gathered there to grieve. It's not that kind of sorrow. Jesus is sad with an outrage. He's angry about what's happening here. So it maybe gives us room for a question to ask. Why? Why is Jesus upset? What is he so angry about? And he comes to this scene. I mean, we don't really catch that in the way it's written or the way it's translated into English, but it's there. Why is he so angry? Well, I mean, there's possibilities to consider. Is he angry because his friend is dead? Well, that doesn't make sense. At least I don't think so because Jesus is the all-knowing God. He knows very well what's going to happen by the end of this story. He knows that Lazarus is coming back. I don't think he's angry about that. Is he angry at Mary and Martha? Well, in the conversations that take place there, Jesus doesn't exactly rebuke them harshly. He doesn't express that kind of anger towards them. So I'm not quite sure that's it. When he sees all of the people who are gathered and weeping there, is he angry at their unbelief, their lack of faith? That they don't catch on to what Jesus is there doing and what he's up to? All right, there's a possibility here. A possibility for this one, that he's angry because they don't see what Jesus is really here to do. They haven't caught on yet. Jesus wants them to know. To know what? To know that Jesus is here. The reason Jesus is here, the reason God sent his son to the world was to defeat death. To have victory over death. We could even see and say here that Jesus is angry. He's outraged at death itself. 
He's angry because he's there existing in this moment in front of a tomb when he knows inside there shouldn't even be a need for tombs at all in this world. We should live in a world where this shouldn't even exist. Death. He's angry at that. He's upset about it. He gives a hint at this in verse 42. In the prayer that he prays, right, he lifts up his hands and he says, I knew that you would always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Sent him for what? What does Jesus want them to believe about why the Father sent the Son into the world? For resurrection. That's what he wants them to know. That there is resurrection. Now, I know that we, we package that in so much more, that Jesus came to offer and give himself as a sacrifice on the cross, that he died for the sins of all the people of the world who turned to him in faith to be forgiven. But that death on the cross reaches its victory when Jesus comes out of the tomb, when Jesus is raised again. It's resurrection that sees all that Jesus has done come to its conclusion. He came for resurrection. And he's angry. He's angry at death itself. And he came to put a stop to that, to turn that around. So this is a passage that shows us a little something about resurrection, that Jesus gives just a little bit of a glimpse, a foreshadow of resurrection that is coming, a resurrection that will be repeated again in a week when Jesus himself comes out of the tomb, and a resurrection that then becomes a theme of the gospel, that Jesus is here for resurrection. So let's trace that one through this story too. What is resurrection? What does resurrection mean? When we talk about this being Resurrection Sunday, what do we mean by that? What does John in his gospel mean by that? Because we may have a, a very detailed or matter-of-fact answer. Well, resurrection means that those who die in the Lord are raised again to new life. I think John pushes us a step further. That resurrection embodies more than that. There's more going on in this story than just that. So follow along with this. And we'll trace how this sort of goes, but stay with me because this, is, this will get to the point, right? God made a world back in Genesis 1, in the very beginning. God created a world that had no sin in it. It was a world that was perfect. It was a world that was characterized by what the Bible calls in the Old Testament, shalom. A word that is translated into English as peace. But you've heard me talk about shalom before. That shalom means peace, not just in the absence of conflict, but shalom means peace in the sense of thriving and flourishing. That shalom is about a world where Everything exists as it was meant to, 
You know those moments. I mean, you catch those perfect moments every now and then, whether it's, you know, seeing that perfect sunset over Lake Michigan or, or whatever that moment is where you sit and you think, oh, everything is right with the world. That's a glimpse of shalom. When you sense and feel that, this is why the world was created to be the good, thriving, and flourishing place that it's supposed to be. That's shalom. That's the world that God created back in Genesis 1. And that's what sin took away. Sin took away shalom. In fact, Neil Plantinga, who writes a book about sin, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he defines sin that way. His definition of sin is, sin is the violation of shalom. That's what sin is. That perfect thriving and flourishing of the world, the way God created and intended for it to be. When that shalom is violated, that is what sin is. It's the world that we live in. When we know that, we see it. When we see the violation, the tearing down, the destroying of what makes this world thrive and flourish the way that God intends, when we see that torn apart, we know that's not right. That's not how God intended for it to be. That is what sin does. Violates the perfect shalom of God in this world. Follow this then, that if sin is the violation of shalom and you see that violation occur and if you take that violation of shalom and you pull it to its furthest extreme, what is the ultimate violation of shalom that has ever occurred? It's death. Death is the ultimate violation of shalom. So then, if death is the ultimate violation of shalom, then resurrection is the ultimate restoration of shalom. That's what resurrection is. That's what resurrection means. Resurrection is the restoration of shalom. And resurrection from death is the ultimate restoration of shalom. You see what we're placing here now is, is a bit of a continuum. We're on the furthest end of one side, death violates shalom to the furthest extent. And on the furthest other side, resurrection restores shalom to its ultimate state. And we see everything in between in the way that we live and the world that we are a part of. We see all the ways that Jesus has come for resurrection, meaning to restore shalom. He says this in other words. It's in the middle of this passage. When he says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
Jesus is saying, I have not just come to demonstrate shalom. I have not just come to work at bringing about shalom. Jesus says, I have come because I am the shalom. And I am bringing it with me. I am restoring the shalom of this world again. That's what I've come to do. That's who I am, is what Jesus is saying. That's what resurrection means. That's what Jesus is declaring on this day. So, Jesus goes to this tomb where Lazarus is and says, take that stone away. They object. It smells in there. Do it anyway. Then he calls out for Lazarus. Says he calls out in a loud voice. All right? The Greek there is, he shouts. He yells. He screams at the top of his lungs. Lazarus, come out of there. It's as though in that moment what Jesus is really yelling what Jesus is really screaming at the top of his lungs is he is yelling to the entire creation, I am bringing shalom back again. It's starting now. It's starting here. Because that's what resurrection is. That's what Jesus calls out and what he's saying on that day. And we live today as resurrection people. Here we are 2,000 years later and we still give testimony to that resurrection and what it means. We give testimony to a resurrection that is the restoration of shalom so that we live in a world that we know is still so broken by sin. But here's how we live then as resurrection people. Here's what that means. It means that we live in a world that whenever... Wherever we see glimpses of shalom, of thriving, of flourishing, glimpses of the world being the way that God intended for it to be, when we see glimpses of that, that's where we gather. That's where we put our efforts. That's what we work towards because we are resurrection people that we work for that as well. I like how this passage ends. Right? It's, it ends with a rather abrupt ending. I mean, he goes to the tomb, he says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus walks out, and, and then it just ends with Jesus saying, all right, take all that grave stuff off and let him go. End of story. Right there. Take the grave clothes off and let him go that there's something in that to see. Jesus emerges from the tomb on that Easter morning. He emerges from the tomb that he was placed in, that he comes back to life. And, and I almost imagine it a scene where we could, through the Gospel of John, echo those same words forward that Jesus would say to the world, not just Lazarus, but he would say to us in the world, he'd say, all right, world, time to take the grave clothes off. You don't need to be covered in these grave clothes of sin anymore. It's time to let the grave go. It's time for shalom to be restored. That's what Jesus declares in coming out of the grave that could not hold him. And so that's how we live today. As those people who on this day, whenever, wherever, however, 
we see glimpses of God bringing his shalom back into the world, the world that we live in today. We grab on to that. We participate in that as best we can with all that we can. And that's what it means to live as resurrection people. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are the one who is victorious over the grave. And we thank you that you have given us a hope that sees the restoration of shalom, a restoration that points to its ultimate fulfilling. And Lord, it's where we can embody that, embrace that, and see that, and give testimony to that in the lives that we live. Lord, we pray that we would do that in ways that strengthen us in hope, in ways that point others towards you, and in ways that always highlight those glimpses we see even now of shalom being restored. Lord, fill us with hope for the day when you restore your perfect shalom completely in this world in the final day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.